where we continue in our study in Paul's letter to Titus, what the true Christian should know and live by. Uh, We began in chapter 1 looking at how does God operate in the true Christian's life, and we saw that from election into eternity past to believing and trusting in Christ as a result of the proclamation of God's Word, God is at work in the true Christian's life. Then we looked at who should the true Christian follow, and we spent two weeks on biblical eldership, why God has placed elders in the church to be faithful shepherds and guides for true believers. We then saw at the end of chapter 1 how there was a need for discernment because there are people who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, even within the church, and true Christians need to grow in their discernment of understanding truth from error. We looked at the true Christian and relationships and what characterizes the true Christian in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 for older men, older women, older, uh, younger men and younger women. And one of the characteristics that we saw in common was uh, this idea of self-control. There'll be more on that here even in this message. Now we come to the true Christian's motivation in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. One of the ways that we're going to see this motivation of God's grace revealed is that it will uh, teach us by means of our looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we look toward that blessed hope, we find a better understanding of His grace. So many of our songs this morning that we sang are reflective of this motivation of looking forward to Christ's coming. Just this week, I ran into an article from CNN that was titled, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. In it, the author of the article was describing the idea that Jesus Christ would come for his bride, the church, is in fact something of a mental illness that requires deep counseling to overcome. Um, Rapture anxiety is recognized by mental health professionals as a type of religious trauma, the article says. It's a real thing. It's a chronic problem, Darren Slade, who's with the Global Center for Religious Research, says. This is a new area of study, but in general, our research has revealed that religious trauma, uh, based on things like the fact that Jesus is coming back, leads to an increase of anxiety, depression, paranoia, and even some OCD-like behaviors. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. The world hates the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back as king. They actually believe that a doctrine that expresses the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory is in fact something that triggers people into mental illness and depression. How horrifying. And so it is with 
a great amount of joy that I introduce to you the blessed hope that is for everyone. The whole world can see it, the grace of God, and everyone is invited to enter into that grace. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Please have a seat. The greatest motivation for the true Christian is God's grace. Now, there are many motivations in the Bible. The one that Paul wants to focus on here, I believe, is the greatest motivation for the true Christian. It is the contemplation, understanding, and embracing of the grace that Almighty God has for us. This grace, in fact, has, uh, is equated here. The grammar is clear. The grace of God is equated with salvation. It is the grace of God that is salvation, has appeared to all people. What is the grace of God? The grace of God is simply His unmerited, undeserved favor. You know, there are some people who will look at someone who's a, you know, total rebel, evil person. They go, they don't deserve God's grace. And the whole idea of deserving and God's grace is an oxymoron, isn't it? It's contradictory. The very idea of grace means that no one deserves it. There is no one who deserves the grace, the unmerited favor of God. Now, why does Paul in this text equate the grace of God with salvation? Because nowhere is the grace of God more clearly seen than in the saving of any sinner. Any of us who are believers in Jesus, there isn't one of us that would say, well, I, I made it to heaven by earning it. That would be a, that would be a hor horrific distortion of truth. There is nothing you can add. You can't say, well, salvation is God's grace, yes, but I contribute and then fill in the blank. No. It's salvation is by the grace of God or it isn't salvation. You are not saved in any other way but by grace. God's unmerited favor bestowed upon us. 
Now, this grace of God that is salvation has revealed itself. It has appeared. It's made an appearance to all people. Now, that does not mean that everybody is saved. Just because the grace of God has been revealed to people does not mean that everybody is saved. But for anyone who is willing to look, the grace of God can be seen. If you have an eye simply to say, I want to see the grace of God, you can see it. Let me give you several ways in which the grace of God appears to all people. First of all, uh, the, the world that God has made, right? The, the creation. When you look at the macro level of creation, you go, whoa, God is remarkable in his grandeur and greatness and in his grace that he allows puny little me to live in this universe that's, that's, as far as we can tell, there's no end to it. Just the fact of your existence is, is a remarkable picture of God's grace. You should not be here. <laughs> None of us. We are here by the grace of God. Then the grace of God is revealed in the undeserved kindness that we receive from others. You know, even even people who are wicked and evil will from time to time show unmerited, undeserved favor to other people. And that's a reflection of what we call in Latin the imago Dei, the image of God that is granted. So when you're in a traffic jam and there's a person who lets you in, you don't have to ask them, well, are you saved or not? <laughs> Just go, thank you, God, for the imago Dei, the image of God revealed in this person that shows me grace. Or someone ahead of you in line pays for your coffee at the drive-thru. It's a, it's a picture of this image of God, the grace of God in, in just common human interaction. It should reveal more than just that's a nice person. It should reveal us the fact that God is a God of grace. And there's something about that that, that kind of lightens our hearts and improves our mood and gives us joy, isn't it? Well, what is that? It's not just that a person was nice to me. It is bigger than that. It should cause us to think maybe the universe is constructed by a God of grace. Thirdly, we see the grace of God in the providential protection that God has granted all people. The providential protection that God has granted all people. If we took the time, I believe literally every one of us would have a story that we could tell where we could have died, in fact should have died, but did not. And go. Yeah, there was that time when, you know, we'd all have a story like that. Why? Because in the providence of God, he spared you. You could have died. You should have died. But you didn't. <laughs> so one way in which we see the grace of God is in his providential care for human beings. 
another way in which we see the grace of God is in the ways that Christians in particular show kindness to the world. The particular way in which Christians show kindness to the world. You know, we've had this hurricane down there in uh, Florida. You can be sure that it won't be thousands of atheists headed down there to help with the cleanup. That's not going to happen. But there will be thousands of Christians who will be headed down there for the cleanup. Why? Not because they get something out of it, but because Christians in particular are people who reveal the grace of God to the world. Just this week, I was watching a movie called Bikes of Wrath. (laughs) A rather forgettable film, by the way. But it was... But it was five Australian guys who came to the United States and they got on bicycles and they rode from Oklahoma to California retracing the steps of John Steinbeck's uh, novel, Grapes of Wrath. And it was about their encounters with people along the way. And what was fascinating to me was that though these five are not believers, this is not a Christian film, What was interesting was the number of people they would run into who would give them grace, undeserved favor, just because they're out there riding their bikes, and would pray with them, asking God's blessing upon them in Jesus' name. They, these five guys, were stunned and mystified by that. The grace of God has appeared in the kindness that believers in Jesus in particular show a hurting world. And then the greatest way in which the grace of God has appeared is in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. God eternally existent as one God in three persons now think about this eternally existent existent into eternity past at a moment in time God the Son came to this earth while maintaining his complete true deity took on human flesh forever and lived a perfect life, dying a cruel death as a payment for all of our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and even now he is preparing a place for everybody who believes in him to forgive them of their sins. And one day he's coming back, and he will be king, and we will enjoy him forever. That is grace. The grace of God has appeared in the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. The grace of this, this appearing of God's grace in creation, 
in the undeserved kindness that we receive from others, in the providential protection from, uh, that God has granted all people, in the ways that Christians show kindness to the world, and most evidently in the telling of the gospel, is helpful in considering the question, what about those who have never heard? The grace of God that is salvation has been made evident enough to everyone that no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, that's unfair, I didn't know enough. No one will be able to say that. The grace of God has appeared. So how is this grace of God the true Christian's greatest motivation? Well, our motive is primarily worship and thanksgiving for grace. That's what our lives are supposed to be, uh, an act of worship and thanksgiving to God for the grace He has freely, undeservedly bestowed upon us. Did you know that your job in this world is not primarily to solve political problems? Your job in this world is not primarily to raise a family. Your job in this world is not primarily to do good stuff or to make money or to make a living. Your primary, primary job is to be a worshiper and to live a life of thanksgiving. Now, the, all of those things are helpful and good. They may be things that God calls you to do, but the first thing is primarily worship and thanksgiving for grace. And it is not out of an obligation that we do it or a seeking to earn points with God that we do it. Instead, we have a loving Heavenly Father who has poured out grace upon grace and our lives are simply a reflection back to Him of thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, you gave me life. Thank you, you gave me eternal life. So rather than curse the growing darkness, and it is growing, isn't it, my friends? Rather than curse the growing darkness, I think that God would have us be unusual lights of grace in this hurting world. There is a darkness growing, no doubt about it. My own opinion is that uh, in our culture, it has grown exponentially since the Obergefell uh, Supreme Court decision. Regardless of where you would date that, there's a lot to curse about the darkness, isn't there? But the true Christian's life motivation must ever be the grace of God. Let's do everything we can to put that grace on display. Is it true that we're in a battle? Indeed. But our greatest weapon is grace to others as a result of the grace that we ourselves have received. Greatest motivation for the true Christian is God's grace. God's grace teaches us how to live right here and now. Now, the order of the verse in verse 12 is interesting. The grace of God has appeared, and the main part of the sentence is the grace of God has appeared to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the main sentence. 
The grace of God has appeared training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That means that the grace of God is for life here and now. That's what the little phrase in the present age means. The grace of God is for life here and now. You don't think, well, right now I get all mad at how my taxes are going up and how the world's going to, you know, perdition and we got to just fight it with all our might and have a scowl on our face as we do so. No, no, no. The grace of God is for here and now. The grace of God teaches us or trains us how to live here and now in three characteristics. It trains us in to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, these are synonyms in many respects, but self-controlled is a key word that we saw over and over earlier in chapter 2. You see it in verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to teach younger women, verse 5, to be self-controlled. Verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And now the grace of God has appeared, training us to live self-controlled lives in the present age, right here and now, that we live self-controlled, upright, righteous, godly lives. The grace of God is a teaching. It's a training instrument. As we reflect upon the grace of God, it changes us from the inside out. Now, there are two means by which this grace of God trains us for these virtues. The first is that the grace of God teaches us by means of renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. So we're trained in self-control, uprightness, and godliness by renouncing some things. There are some things we go no to, and they are called ungodliness and worldly passions. Years ago, there was a, uh, a speaker on the um, uh, Back to the Bible broadcast by the name of Theodore Epp. Uh, maybe there'd be three people who would remember him here in this room. But Dr. Epp would talk fairly frequently about worldliness. And just the way he said it made you want to renounce it. Okay? He would say, my friends... There is a problem with worldliness. Just the way he said it. As a young boy, I just thought, I don't know what that is, but I want to renounce it. I don't think we talk too much about that these days. We kind of have a sense of, well, just, you know, grace means everybody does what they want to do and we all just say it's all good. Now, the grace of God teaches us to renounce. It says, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We live for someone else, not for our passions. As Christians, we don't have to do what the world does. 
So it teaches us by means of renouncing, but it also teaches us by means of looking forward to something. Look at verse 13. It's teaching us not just to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, but to wait for the blessed hope, to look forward to the blessed hope. It is a blessed hope. It's not a mental illness like CNN says. <laughs> the doctrine of Jesus coming back is a blessed hope for the believer. Now, it's fascinating to me that if we were to do a, a survey in this room to say, okay, what should Pastor Scott preach on next? Okay, About 40% of you would say, we need to do a study in Revelation. Um, and may I just say that I've done that before, and people were uh, almost universally disappointed. And the reason for that is that they were thinking that Revelation teaches something that it doesn't teach. You know, they're thinking that Revelation is about how current events tie in with, future, uh, with the future predictions of the Bible, and where are tanks in the Bible, and where is the United States of America in the Bible, and where is this or that, where's nuclear weapons in the Bible, and all that kind of stuff. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. The book of Revelation is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not first and foremost about all these things that may tickle our fancy. It is about the white hot worship of Jesus Christ made known in the gospel. That's that's what that's about. And so when we say looking for the blessed hope, it's not so much that we're thinking about how do some specific event tie in with the events of Bible prophecy. It is about Jesus and knowing him and loving him. It is a glorious appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one appearing is ours do you see that? The appearing of our great God. He belongs to us and as much as we belong to Him. We'll find out that we belong to Him when we get to verse 14, but He belongs to us. The one appearing is ours. The one appearing is our great God. The word great attached there is somewhat redundant, isn't it? But I think what Paul wants to emphasize is that out of all the kingdoms of this world and all the Caesars and all these little tin potentates who have risen and fallen in world history, there's really only one great God and Savior, and that's King Jesus. The one appearing is the Savior, the Savior of the world. He saves us from our sins. You will call his name Jesus the angel announced, for he will save his people from their sins. The one appearing is, in fact, Jesus Christ. So, God's grace teaches us to live in three virtues, self-controlled, upright, and godly. It teaches us by means of doing two things. 
how to say no to sin, and the other is how to look forward to King Jesus' return. So now, we've looked at God's grace teaching us how to live right now. God makes His grace known by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in verse 13, you have the person. In verse 14, you have the work of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the person right at the end of verse 13. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to teach you a little Greek here, so hang with me. There's a construction, a grammatical construction, that a guy a couple hundred years ago by the name of Granville Sharp discovered. There are literally thousands of examples of this particular construction in Greek literature, both Bible and extra-biblical Greek literature, and this rule is true without exception. That is, there's no exceptions to this rule. If you have the word the, and then you have a personal noun in the singular, followed by the word and, and another personal noun in the singular, the two that are connected by the and refer to one and the same person. In other words, when it says the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's not that there's God and there's Jesus, it's that Jesus is the great God. And there is no exception to what's called the Granville Sharp rule. No exceptions. Now, there are Granville Sharp constructions where the words are not personal nouns or they are not in the singular, okay? There are all kinds of those. In fact, there's one here in the text. That's the cutting room floor. You don't get that one. But this one, it's saying that Jesus is God. Now, there are all kinds of people who want to tell you, in fact, the church always hung hanging by a thread for a while on this, whether or not they believed that Jesus was God. There was a guy named Athanasius who rescued this doctrine for the church. In fact, he was called Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, the whole world of theologians and scholars were believing that Jesus wasn't God and Athanasius showed and proved from the scriptures that Jesus in fact is God. And we have this Granville Sharp rule here that says the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Who is it? Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. And there's no exceptions to the Granville Sharp rule. This is the person of Jesus Christ. God makes his grace known by the person of Jesus. God, who never gave, who never emptied himself of being God, took on true manhood in order to rescue us from the coming wrath. The person of Jesus. He makes God's grace known. Verse 14 The work of Jesus makes his grace known. What did Jesus do? We know who he is. He's the great God. He's 
distinct from God the Father, and yet there's one God existing in three persons. Jesus is God the Son. But what did he do? Who gave himself. He freely gave himself. Think about it. Existing in eternity past, in all of his glory and splendor and complete satisfaction and pleasure with himself, (laughs) and emptied himself to come here to take on human flesh to rescue us. Who gave himself? Look at that little, those two little words, for us. That's substitution. The death I should die, the wrath I deserved, was laid on the God of the universe, laid on Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. Now let's think about the purpose of that substitution. Why did Jesus take our place? Verse 14 continues, he did it to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is the idea of purchase. He purchases our freedom from sin. Did you know that as a believer, you don't have to sin anymore? You don't have to. The non-Christian cannot help but sin. You do not have to. It has been, your freedom has been purchased. That doesn't mean that you don't sin, but you don't have to. He has purchased our freedom. And then there's another reason why he gave himself for us here in this verse. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He did it not just for us, to redeem us. He did it for himself, to purify for himself, not just individuals, but a people. The focus here is that God is in the business of rescuing a people for his own possession. Yes, he is our God and Savior, but we are also his and we belong to him and him alone. He has done this. He has given himself for us to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. If you wonder where do good works fit in here, it isn't at all to try to earn or deserve God's grace. It is simply that Jesus has given himself for us to purify for himself a people who now are transformed in their motivations. They're zealous to please him. Why? Because the motivation of God's grace. (laughs) You're so gracious. You rescued me. And as a people of God, we are now the Lord's, zealous to please Him. Our motivation, therefore, is all for Him and not for us. We should not be thinking, well, what do I have in for it here? It should all be for Him. So, verse 15, Paul concludes with these instructions to Titus. Declare these things. Don't stop saying this stuff. This is the essential thing. 
you got to keep reminding people of this. You know why? Because we're forgetful. (laughs) We lose sight of it. Circumstances grab hold of us and our attention wanders. And Paul says, declare these things, exhort these things. The word exhort has the idea both of a challenge and encouraging. It puts all that together. Encourage it. Stress it. Focus on it. Help people believe it. Embrace it. Rebuke, that is, rebuke contrary ideas with all authority. Tell people to stop it who don't believe that Jesus is God, who don't believe that we're saved by the grace of God, who want to embrace ungodliness and worldly passions, who don't live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right here and now, who don't look forward to the blessed hope. Rebuke that. Rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let no one in the church say, well, yeah, that's, that's great for somebody else. It's no, no, no. Let's all pay attention here. So let's think about some applications. First, grace should characterize our lives since we have received grace from God. That should be the first thing that should be immediately observable by any Christian. Wow, they're, a gracious, they're, they're so gracious. Second, the motivation of God's grace trains us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. As we reflect upon and meditate upon the grace of God, it, it should change how we live. God's grace is a means then of saying no to ungodliness and, as Theodore Epps said, worldliness, right? Say no to that. And looking forward to Christ's return grows our affection for God's grace, Otherwise, we would be afraid of Christ's return. We'd be back in that weird zone of CNN and what they say of belief in the return of Jesus being some kind of mental illness. But if we've received God's grace through faith in Jesus, this blessed hope is blessed indeed and we look forward to it. And then finally, God has made his grace known in the person of Jesus Christ, who's God himself, And in the work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. And is purifying for himself a people who are zealous to please him. Let's pray. If there's anyone in this room while we are praying has not put their faith in Jesus, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes right now. Would you help them to see that their lives are utterly condemnable because sin has infected the human race and we cannot get rid of it. Try as we might, we cannot get rid of it. Help them then to see that the grace of God has appeared, that Jesus, God come in the flesh, has died for us in our place to purchase our freedom and to purify for himself a people. And I pray that they would put their faith in Jesus, asking him to forgive them of their sin and to give them eternal life through the substitutionary death that Jesus took our place, took our punishment.
Help us all to see that we can never earn or deserve this grace. And then help us, Lord, who do have faith in your Son, so to live lives of grace before a watching world. Let it be said of us that we are a people purified by Jesus, zealous to please him, and that we want to show as much grace as we can to everybody around us. In Jesus' name, amen.